Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is To the Barricades a panoramic account of the continent-wide outbreak of revolutions in 1848, by Abigail Green, from the issue of April 28, 2023. Abigail Green is Professor of Modern European History at the University of Oxford. She is writing an international history of Jewish liberal activism since 1848. When we think of the revolutions of 1848, we see them in technicolour. There are people, crowds and crowds of people, caught in moments of intense activity, and behind them there are the immediately recognisable cityscapes of 19th century Europe, Paris, Venice, Vienna and Berlin. And always there are the flags. The red flag of revolution and the tricolours of nationalism, black, red and gold, green, white and red, red, white and blue. It's like a theatrical production, at once operatic and dramatic, playing out before us on a vast pan-continental stage. Christopher Clarke's extraordinary new history of 1848 shows us something different, right from the cover illustration. Not crowds, but the menacing emptiness that lies between the barricades of a Paris street when you hope for the best, fear for the worst, and hide from the gunfire. Not colour, but a brooding, hazy, sepia-tinted world in which the protagonists are barely discernible. We know they're there, but we can't see them, not quite. Yet, if we look really closely, we can see that everything and everyone was in motion. Even before the revolutions, this was a moment of dislocation. Nowadays, a historian might call it a polycrisis. All across Europe, the nature of work and of property was changing. Agriculture and landholding practices were in a state of upheaval, and social conflicts broke out, often violent, always unsettling, and driven, Clark tells us, by competition over every conceivable resource in a world marked by scarcity and low rates of productivity growth. Some of these crises are familiar. The revolts of the Leon Canutes, 1834, 
and the Silesian Weavers, 1844, the Irish Potato Famine beginning in 1845, and the Galician Massacres of 1846. Others are more or less unknown, like the Pyrenean Guerre des Demoiselles, 1829-1831, in which peasant men dressed as women, the better to resist attempts by the authorities to deny their traditional access to the forest and its resources. What matters is that contemporaries knew them and wrote about them. This was an era in which members of the new bourgeois classes began to direct a voyeuristic, moralistic and statistically inclined eye on the appalling conditions of their compatriots. In the age that preceded the tenement block, poverty had a different quality. It transpired that in places as unlike as Vienna and Nantes, those at the bottom of the social pile lived, literally, in sewers beneath the ground, which they wandered barefoot and in rags. Clark emphasises that there was no direct causal nexus between all this and the outbreak of revolution in 1848. The geographies of insurrection and acute poverty never really converged, because fighting for a new world was hardly top of the agenda for the truly desperate. This, of course, we have known for a long time. Invariably, however, hunger was political and in an age of transition, when such terms as liberalism, socialism and conservatism were only just entering the lexicon, politics too was changing. The society brought to life in revolutionary spring thrills with unexpected energy. Clark speaks the language of liberal moderation, of political radicalism, of religion and of patriotism in ways that capture something of the glamour that infused them at the time. Here we find the subversive magic of the market as a space of equal and free exchange in a Europe marked by feudal and monarchical power. The infatuation of democratic and socialist radicals with the prospect of social harmony, a prospect liberals, even then, knew to be as fantastical as the Icarian socialist vision of a banquet at which all classes could eat their fill peaceably together, in contrast to the real but much more socially divisive political banquets that were very much a feature of this era. And the spiritual radiance with which nationalists, such as the novelist and poet Adam Miskiewicz, infused his books of the Polish nation, 1832, and invoked the sufferings of a martyred people. Religion is flowing through this text, Clark writes, but it is not the religion Europeans learned from their priests. Faith and the language of religious tradition had not lost their power to transfigure the political, but danger lurked in a world where religious sentiment had got unstuck from religious authority. These decades saw the emergence of a new class of politician, the professional revolutionary. Contemporaries obsessed over the threat posed by clandestine networks, and there certainly seemed to be plenty of them. In early 19th century Geneva, Filippo Buonarroti, a veteran of the 1790s, established the Sublimes Maitre Parfait, an esoteric network dedicated to the republicanization of the whole of Europe, which operated under the cover of Freemasonry. During the 1830s, the German dramatist Georg Buchner fled Hesse after publishing a visionary call to arms that horrified the authorities with its oblique references to an entirely imaginary, insurrectionary network composed of messengers of the Lord. 
The socialist Louis-Auguste Blanqui, a lifelong revolutionary and orchestrator of clandestine networks, spent 33 years as the prisoner of a series of repressive, if ideologically disparate, French regimes. Then there was the quintessential nationalist, Giuseppe Mazzini, the most wanted man in continental Europe. He was a deeply charismatic figure, whom the American journalist Margaret Fuller described as by far the most beauteous man she had ever seen. A visionary who, as Carlo Cataneo put it, considered disasters victories, provided that one fought. As an insurrectionary, Mazzini was a perennial failure, but his genius for publicity was unparalleled. The glamour attached to such figures distracted the authorities from the more humdrum realities of political dissent, social unrest and severe economic dislocation that were undermining their world from within. Where then did the dam burst? Arguably the first cracks appeared in Switzerland. It was here, in 1847, that a conflict between the leadership of the Swiss Confederation and a small group of dissident Catholic cantons determined to assert their democratic right to readmit the Jesuits, spilled over into a short but by no means bloodless civil war. Contemporaries on all sides read it as a test case in the struggle between revolution and reaction, to cite one diplomatic report. After that came Sicily, a polity that had been seething with upheaval for the best part of thirty years. It was here that the insurgents of 1848 first tasted victory, when a small chaotic uprising in Palermo rapidly escalated into something more, violent, disparate and uncontrollable, disrupting the established order in both city and countryside. And then, of course, there was France. Generations of historians have cast the revolutions as a wave that swept over Europe, with Paris at the epicentre. When the German-Jewish writer Fanny Lowald set out to experience the revolution firsthand, she headed inevitably for the French capital, a city she described as Europe's perennially beating heart. That narrative replicates the France-first model of political modernity to which 1789 gave birth. Chroniclers of 1848 have struggled to escape this model because to describe the collapse of regimes across Europe is to describe something that looks remarkably like a domino effect. Writing 25 years ago, the German historian Dieter Langerwischer argued that 1848 was not merely a repeat of the 1790s. It was instead something qualitatively new, a single pan-continental news event that united levels of experience previously separated, the provincial, the national and the European. In this way, the revolutions Europeanized politics, even as they politicized Europe. The upshot was a phenomenon that Langevisha termed communication from Europa. Clark, too, stresses the Europeanness of that moment. The concise, epigrammatic brilliance of Marx's 18th Brumaire, still the most influential account of the revolutions, was predicated on a clear national focus, just as the brevity of Louis Namier's elegant analysis of 1944 depended on his preoccupation with Central Europe. What we have here is a qualitatively different undertaking, a panoramic account stretching from Portugal to the Ionian Islands of a set of interconnected societies caught between unravelling and beginning. 
It is a new kind of de-centred European history, one that rides roughshod over established narrative and geopolitical hierarchies. Of course, unrest did propagate outwards, as the capitals of the most important states on the continent became nodal points of high instability. Yet the reality was more complex than this implies. The revolutions of 1848 were neither directly linked nor independent, but cognate, rooted in the same interconnected economic space, unfolding within kindred cultural and political orders, and precipitated by processes of socio-political and ideational change that had always been transnationally connected. That perception of a continent-wide upheaval was widely shared by contemporaries before as well as after the event. The radical republicans of the Parisian daily La Reforme, who soon found themselves helping to run the French provisional government, Marx and Engels, for whom the spectre of communism haunted Europe and not its constituent states, the conservative voices behind El Geraldo close to the Moderado regime in Spain, and the editors of smaller, less well-resourced publications such as the Finnish language Suomata, the Hungarian Gazeta de Transylvania, and the Corriere Romanesque, all of which continually filleted and republished each other's stories. All were informed about the advancing frontier of political unrest, and in a good position to recognise its trans-European character. Nor did statesmen like François Guizot or Clemens von Metternich demure. In short, it hardly matters if the revolution, simultaneously a singular and a plural phenomenon, began in Sicily, Switzerland or France. For all over Europe there were precipitants and there were long-term socio-economic causes. Everywhere the time of politics was accelerating as capital cities, provincial towns and their rural hinterlands began marching to a different beat. This is narrative history in the grand style, and Clark does not neglect the great set pieces. If you want the February Revolution, the fall of Metternich, the five days of Milan, you will find them vividly rendered here in a prose that interlaces deep learning with deliberate anachronism. This might seem gimmicky. In fact, it is oddly effective, because it forces us to question what we thought we knew. Whether we're talking about the Dolce & Gabbana glamour of that legendary Risorgimento leader Giuseppe Garibaldi, or the Tahrir Square-like qualities of revolutionary spaces from the Piazza del Quirinale in Rome, through the Landhaus Courtyard in Vienna, to the Schlossplatz in Berlin, all places of emotion and awakening, where the distance between people is abolished, in the words of a popular Egyptian song of 2011. But in the spring of 1848, as Clark notes, the story fractures. Alongside the set pieces, something deeper emerges, a thematically constructive comparative narrative that is, at the same time, a highly sophisticated work of analysis. Honour your dead, establish a government, elect a parliament, draft a constitution. Always the author sets the obvious against the unfamiliar. France against the Romanian principalities, Denmark against Piedmont, the Sicilian Parliament against the German National Assembly. Occasionally he stands aside to ask about other places and experiences, Black 1848, Global 1848, and the dogs that didn't bark. 
Much of this is replete with insight. If you thought legal history was boring, Clark will persuade you otherwise. Infused with the hallucinatory language of the defrocked priest, Felicité de Lamennais, the constitutions drafted in the white heat of revolution were not dry cookie-cutter statutes cribbed from a common template, but highly idiosyncratic documents in which monarchical or republican elites spoke directly to the masses of the governed. Did you think that Britain and Belgium were spared revolution because the appetite of their populations for social and political reform was sated? Clark will draw your attention to the strong arm of the state in these supposedly liberal havens. 150,000 Chartists met at Kennington Common on April 10, 1848. They were held at bay by 4,000 police, 12,000 troops held in reserve, and 85,000 club-wielding volunteers. The Prussians were so impressed that they sent one of their best men to tour London and the provinces and see what he could learn. Or perhaps you thought of the revolutions as the pivot around which the great transatlantic age of emancipations turned. Clark shows instead how the power of words such as emancipation and slavery has served to elide experiences that were, in fact, unlike. The situation of peasants differed when it came to rights, from that of enslaved people, Jews, women, and the Roma slaves of Eastern Europe. All these groups aspired to freedom, though rarely with one voice, but for many reasons their histories have remained distinct. Racism, sexism, and the peculiar predicament of the Jews, in which theology, eschatology, xenophobia, and social anxiety blended to create a remarkably resilient form of suspicion and hatred, these three rationales of discrimination were not functions of each other, but separate fundaments, so deeply built into modern European culture that they seemed primordial, natural, ordained by God. Then, as now, the plight of outcast groups haunted the imagination of Europe's cultural elites. In reality, however, the vaunted age of emancipation always amounted to less than the sum of its parts. Jews and Roma briefly became citizens, only to experience repeated cycles of rejection and inclusion, culminating in both cases in genocide. Slavery was abolished apparently from the metropole, but in colonies such as Martinique and Guadeloupe, enslaved people did not hesitate to take matters into their own hands, setting an example that those on the nearby Dutch islands of the Lesser Antilles soon followed. But liberty can be granted in principle without being enjoyed in fact. Most former slaves remained in their place of employment, even if they insisted on the right to grow vegetables for their own use, to treat their traditional houses as private property, or to work for different masters. As for women, they only really began to achieve political rights during the First World War, and many decades later in the homeland of revolution, France. The focus in this review on causes rather than consequences reflects the balance of a narrative that is richer and less compressed at the beginning than the end. Not that the ending was unimportant. Repeatedly and in a wide variety of contexts, Clark stresses that 1848 cannot be dismissed as a failure. Rather, the multitude of questions that underpin the revolutions about democracy, representation, social equality, the organisation of labour, gender relations, religion, forms of state power, 
render them too complex and diffuse an episode to be understood in such terms. They were chaotic, but they were also deeply consequential. They changed the way contemporaries, all of them, read and sought to navigate the world. As Clark tells it, there are periods, including the Cold War, whose signature is stabilisation, and there are periods, like our own age, marked by flux and transition, where the direction of travel is harder to discern, when disparate forms of identity and commitment become unpredictably enmeshed with each other. That insight lies at the heart of this book, which repeatedly makes a connection between then and now. All history, of course, is written in the present, but as we watch public transport grind to a halt in Germany, flag-waving Israelis demonstrate en masse in defence of the judiciary, and France subsumed, yet again, in a wave of violent protest, fed simultaneously by the left and the right, we may feel he has a point. Part of the charm of this superb book lies in its ability to juxtapose the celebrated with the forgotten. We remember Marx and Mazzini. Some of us have even heard of the utopian cult that coalesced around the ideas of Saint Simon and the abolitionism of the Frenchman Victor Schulcher. But who now knows the radical Parisian journalist Claire Demar? For her, patriarchy, not monarchy, religion or capital, was the monstrous power that underpinned the inequality of all humans. The power of fathers to beat their sons and of husbands to beat, rape and dispossess their wives. She would commit suicide shortly after committing these thoughts to paper. Both her feminism and her tragic end surely render Demar a heroine ripe for rediscovery. The same could hardly be said of the poet, essayist and proud Illyrian patriot Dragila Janovich, a woman born and bred in German-speaking Croatia, who rejected the cultura sprahas of her childhood for a language she could hardly speak, which she came to embrace as my mother tongue. Nationalism is less popular than it once was in the chattering classes, but Janovich's life speaks to aspects of our own society the ability of men and women to construct new identities and to articulate them in biological and ideologically laden terms. 175 years later, the revolution seemed to have long since receded into history. Yet it is common nowadays for citizens of the 21st century to find ways of connecting imaginatively to the mid-19th century past. The internet is awash with stories of those nurtured in multi-generational families for whom the lived experience of slavery feels almost within touching distance. The descendants of slave owners have likewise begun to acknowledge an emotional and financial connection to that horrific history. In short, Clark is right to remind us that the revolutions of 1848 are less distant than we think. In Italian, it is still possible to fare unquarantoto. Not coincidentally, perhaps, it was an Italian Israeli who texted me from Jerusalem to say that she felt as if she were reliving the 1848 barricades, shouting basic liberal values. Only the other day, at an event largely attended by elderly Central European refugees, I met a historian who described himself as both a Catholic and a Jew, proudly asserting his descent on the Catholic side, from a soldier who lost an arm at the Battle of Kustosa, fighting under Field Marshal Radetzky for the Habsburgs in 1848. 
Politically and personally, these genealogies have become hopelessly entangled, but there is a sense in which we are all, particularly in Europe, children of 1848. You were listening to the TLS. This is To the Barricades, a panoramic account of the continent-wide outbreak of revolutions in 1848 by Abigail Green from the issue of April 28, 2023. It was read by Jane Wing for Noah. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.